The world is hurting. How do we change it? This week I did what many of us do when facing a significant question. I googled it. I sat at my computer and typed into the search engine how to change the world. It won't surprise you to hear that the internet has no shortage of answers to that question. Pages and pages of ideas and claims on how humanity's wounds can be treated and its brokenness fixed. Trying to avoid being overwhelmed, I quickly clicked on one of the top suggestions, an article entitled, 10 Things That Even You Can Do to Change the World. Here are the instructions the author provided. Share positivity. Plant a garden. Meditate. Speak up and take action. Clean up, speaking of litter. Stop polluting the water. Reconsider your eating habits. Find out more about what you buy, wear, and use. Volunteer. Be kinder. You know, we can all empathize and sympathize with the heavy-heartedness that motivates articles like that to be written. Looking around us, we see hurt and fear, imperfection and injustice, brokenness and frustration. Some don't only see it, they experience it. And knowing the flaws of this world, something inside of us aches for real peace, true justice, and perfect goodness. Now as Christians, we understand where that ache comes from. It flows from the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of the one true God, the God of peace, justice, and goodness. And while that image is marred by sin, it remains, even in those who reject the God that put it there. We were not created to live in chaos, and we won't always do so. Because of this, every human being can look around and recognize what should not be and long for something better. We want change, even just incremental change, so long as it's real and sustainable and good. Now the question is, will meditation do the trick? Will spreading positivity make a lasting difference? Will recycling cure what truly ails us? I'm not saying suggestions like these are bad things. Planting a garden is great. But what I am saying, however, is that they are band-aids on cancer. They may give the ego boost of a participation ribbon, helping us feel like we've contributed in, the, in a meaningful way, but in actuality, we are far, far out of our depth. The world is hurting. How do we truly change it? Well, instead of turning to people for answers, like I did online earlier this week, today we are going to turn to God for answers. If you have a Bible, please make your way to Genesis chapters 46 and 47. In these two chapters, we're going to find an example of how God changes the world through his people. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, you and I are going to pray that we have the conviction and clarity to do the same today. A day and age in which no less than in Joseph's day needs divine intervention. Let's follow along as a handful of people from our church family read the text for us. Keeping in mind that what we're about to hear read are the very words of the living God. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. 
for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants, who went to Egypt. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan had died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez, Hezron, and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Pua, Jashub, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These were the sons Leah bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, besides his daughter Dinah. These sons and daughters of his were thirty-three in all. The sons of Gad, Zaphon, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodai, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, and Bariah. Their sister was Sarah. The sons of Bariah, Haber, and Melchiel. These were the children born to Jacob by Zilpah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Leah, sixteen in all. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. In Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Baker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ahi, Rosh, Muppin, Hapim, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, fourteen in all. The son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jazer, and Shilam. These were the sons born to Jacob by Bilhah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Rachel, seven in all. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his sons' wives, numbered sixty-six persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt, were seventy in all. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, 
I will go up and speak to Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who are living in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, What is your occupation? You should answer, Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers, with their flocks and herds and everything they own, have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here for a while, because the famine is severe in Canaan, and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their children. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude. 
from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests, because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have brought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you'll show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. As you heard that passage read, did you notice how it described worlds being changed? How life was altered for so many people in dramatic and life-giving ways? Consider first the people of Israel in this text. In our text today, they're en route to Egypt. Verse 1 says that Israel set out with all that was his. And verse 7 reiterates, Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. Moses, the author of this book, then provides a long list of their names and concludes in verse 27 of that opening chapter we read by once again highlighting the scope of this clan-wide move. The members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. You know, this week will mark the two-year anniversary of my acceptance of the invitation from Oak Ridge Bible Chapel to come and serve as pastor. That means two years ago, my family began the relocation process from the sprawling farm fields of Saskatchewan to the sprawling metropolis of the greater Toronto area. Those of you who have moved before will know that's no small ordeal. To pause life, pack up, ship out, resettle, and restart life is a dramatic shift, a significant transition. And I am confident that the Boyd family's modern-day relocation to Oakville was nothing compared to Israel's ancient relocation to Egypt. It was a huge change for the whole family. Israel was leaving behind the known and marching toward the unknown. They were departing a familiar land and approaching a foreign nation. And it wasn't as though they were moving during a time of economic security either. This was famine time, remember. Desperate times for many, and Israel had not been immune. I'm sure that along the journey, there were some in the convoy who were nervous and skeptical and uncertain. Is this really the wisest decision for our family to be making? 
But as the text makes clear, God took care of this family, didn't he? From the moment they arrive in their new home country, we see God blessing them. Look at verse 28 of chapter 46. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Joseph is waiting in his royal chariot when his family arrives. The scene is almost like a triumphant processional of a celebrity arriving home in victory. Immediately, father and son embrace and weep in joy. This is a life-changing family reconciliation. Eventually, with tears still in their eyes and faces hurting from all the smiling and laughing, Joseph arranges a meeting between some of his brothers and Pharaoh, his boss, coaching them on how to respond. To me, when I read this, this sounds like going through airport customs or crossing the border in a vehicle. You know, there's the tension as you approach the officer. They take your documents, look you up and down, and and ask questions about where you're coming from, where you're going, what you have with you, and what you plan on doing in their country. It's oddly tense for the simplicity of the questions. Well, that's how I picture Joseph's brothers here. Though it isn't customs officers questioning them, it's, it's actually Pharaoh himself. Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. We have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan, and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their children. While in Canaan, Israel was suffering with grief, with family tension, and and the threat of starvation because of the famine. And now, having made the move to Egypt, they're not only blessed with family reconciliation, but with economic and material blessing as well. Though he has his own countrymen to care for, Pharaoh gives Joseph's family the best part of the land, the text says twice. Jobs working for the king himself and all the food they need. Chapter 47, verse 27, sums up Israel's new reality when it says this. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. Apparently, this is the boardwalk in the park place of Egypt. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. The people of Israel were blessed. Who knew that the move to Egypt would alter their lives so dramatically, change their world for the better? Now, what about the people of Egypt? Do they experience world-changing blessings as well? Well, yes, they do. And it's showcased for us in chapter 47, 13 to 26. The interaction between Joseph, the one in charge of all the grain, and the Egyptians, those in need of all the grain. Look what they ask, or look what they say in verse 15 when the Egyptians come to Joseph. They say, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Hearing this, Joseph offers to take livestock instead of money. 
The people accept the offer, and handing over their animals, they buy another year's worth of supplies. But the famine continues, and running out of food again, the Egyptians return to Joseph in verses 18 and 19 with no money, no livestock, and empty bellies. Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. Once again, Joseph agrees. Now, Pharaoh has all the money, all the livestock, and all the available land, and all the workers in Egypt. You know, to us, this may smell a little bit like exploitation, right? a superpower leveraging real need for sordid personal gain. But we need to be careful to allow the text to dictate our response to the text. Because the Egyptians don't see this as, unjust or as unjust at all. Look at their response in verse 25. You have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. See, the Egyptians are grateful to Joseph for delivering them. And, and in some ways, they speak to him in language that sounds a little bit like worship. They revere him for what he's done. There's no bitterness here. They consider themselves blessed. Their lives have been spared. Their world has been changed. Real life, very real, life-threatening needs have been met for both the people of Israel and the people of Egypt in this text. And the passage we've read shows both very distinctly. Both are being met. Both needs are being met. But it also shows a connection between these two. More specifically, how a blessed Egypt is the result of a blessed Israel. God's people are blessed, and because of that, they bless the people around them. And in this case, that's the Egyptians. And this connection between these two becomes clear when we notice a pattern that takes place in two consecutive interactions within this text. The first is actually between Jacob and Pharaoh, a meeting that Joseph arranges after his brothers have left the Egyptian customs office, so to speak. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Not only is it amazing that this old foreign man gets an audience with the most powerful individual in the known world, but he takes the opportunity to bless him. It isn't the king blessing Jacob. It's Jacob the lesser blessing the king the greater. He does it when he arrives in verse 7 and when he departs in verse 10, bracketing the entire interaction. An interaction that seems to focus on an odd detail. Jacob's age is the topic of conversation. Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And we might ask, why would this even come up? And more than that, perhaps, why is it the only detail, really, that Moses records for us in this text? Well, to understand that, I think we need to remember the theological significance of a long life in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33, the Lord says, Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. 
Likewise, Proverbs 16 says, Gray hair is a crown of splendor. In Job 42, verse 17, And so Job died an old man and full of years. And this is just a sample from the scriptures. But oftentimes in the Bible, length of days is an explicit sign of blessing from God. And while Jacob sees his 130 years to be shorter than those of his ancestors, it's a long life nonetheless. Hardships notwithstanding, he has been blessed by God in an objective, quantifiable way. And being blessed by God, Jacob then extends blessing to Pharaoh. That's the pattern. And we read the rest of chapter 47, we find that pattern repeated again, but on a grander scale, extending from Jacob and Pharaoh to the nations they represent, Israel and Egypt respectively. Once again, as we move on, we find brackets enclosing the interaction. On one side, in verses 11 and 12, we have a two-verse statement of God's blessings for Israel. And on the other side, in verse 27, there's a mirrored statement of their blessings. In fact, let me read verses 12 and verse 27 together so you can hear the continuity between the two. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. So we have two clear statements of divine favor for the nation of Israel. But what's between those two brackets? Well, we've actually already read it. It's that interaction between Joseph and the Egyptians in which the latter declare their gratitude for the former saving their lives. The blessings of Israel bracketing the blessings of Egypt. So you see the pattern. Jacob, being blessed, blesses Pharaoh. The people of Israel, being blessed, bless the people of Egypt through Joseph. God here spares countless lives as he works through his own people in significant foundational ways for both nations, their worlds are changed. In different ways than described in Genesis 36 and 37, our world today is hurting. Depression, violence, poverty, racism, infidelity, exploitation, homelessness, Insecurity, loneliness, the, world, the list goes on and on. Our world is hurting. And I think we know, as people, saved and unsaved alike, that things like planting gardens, picking up litter, and reconsidering our eating habits, while not in and of themselves bad things, will simply not get the job done. Those human-centered, human-powered efforts are akin to washing the windows of a building with a sinking foundation. So, what can we do? The world is hurting. How do we change it? Well, again, let's go to our passage and see what the catalyst for change was there. And for that, we go all the way to the beginning of our text in chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that was his, And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. Now this isn't the first time in his life that Jacob has come to Beersheba, preparing to leave the promised land, only to be given a vision from God at night. This has actually happened to him before. 
In Genesis chapter 28, he, Jacob, was sent by his father Isaac to find himself a wife. And passing through Beersheba, he had a dream in which God reiterated to Jacob promises he had made to Abraham and Isaac before him. Let me read a couple of verses from Genesis chapter 28. This is God speaking, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the, of the earth. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The promises that had been his grandfather's and his father's were now his. The promised land would belong to him and his uncountable offspring. God would not leave him until then, and and the world would be blessed through him and his progeny. Now, fast forward in chapter 46, where we are today, years removed from that fateful night, Jacob's at Beersheba again. This time, he's about to lead his entire family out of the promised land that God had told him would be theirs. It kind of seems like he's moving away from the promises, doesn't it? Like he's taking a step backwards. We have to wonder, is he being disobedient here? Is he working against God's will just because he wants to see Joseph so badly? And not only is he leaving the promised land, but he's leaving it for Egypt. See, moving to Egypt to escape famine had not ended well for his grandfather Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And God had strictly forbidden the move to Egypt for his father Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. And as Jacob now prepares to move his family to Egypt, we have to wonder if he was aware of the prophetic words given to his grandfather in Genesis chapter 15 when God spoke to Abraham and said, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. I mean, is that what Jacob is now leading his family into, the fulfillment of that prophecy? Are they headed away from God's blessings and towards slavery and hardship? I mean, this is a big decision for Jacob at this moment in Genesis chapter 46. One that will impact not only himself and his immediate family, but the countless generations he's been promised. And ultimately, the whole world that is supposed to be blessed through them. Is he working against God here? It's a big decision with a whole lot of unknowns and questions. So what does Jacob do? Well, we read, he builds an altar and he worships. We get the sense here that he's seeking guidance or or even permission from God to accept the invitation from Joseph to leave Canaan and settle in Egypt. And just like he did years ago, God meets Jacob in a dream that night and sets his conflicted conscience at ease. I am God. The God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. In this vision, God reaffirms the promises he made to Jacob long ago. This move to Egypt does not cancel them out. God will still go with them. God will still grow them into a great nation. God will indeed bring you back to this promised land. This move to Egypt is really given the divine stamp of approval in this vision. But God also adds a new promise here, that of Jacob's death. 
Whereas Egypt would become the womb for the burgeoning nation of Israel, it would also become the temporary tomb for the man Israel. The patriarch wakes from the vision, and what does he do next? Well, let's see in verses 5, 6, and 7. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. God speaks, Jacob trusts, and Jacob obeys. Notice the simplicity of that equation. Did Jacob have questions remaining as he walked toward Egypt? I'm not sure how he couldn't have. Are we going to be accepted in Egypt? Will we be jobless there and starve? How can we become a great nation while surrounded by foreigners who won't like us? Will we remain distinct from the Egyptians or will we just start blending in? How am I going to get back to the promised land like God said I would? When will Joseph close my eyes? How is this move going to bless the world? No doubt, Jacob had questions. But he had a choice to make as he stood on the border of Canaan looking ahead to Egypt. Is this God who has spoken trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Do I believe he's a good communicator and that he means what he says and knows what's best? Is his character such that I want to and need to trust him? If so, I better obey. And that's exactly what he does. Jacob hears God, trusts God, and immediately takes obedient steps in the direction he's told to go, even though he couldn't see the whole picture and even though he didn't have all the answers. He trusts in God and his trust in God motivates his obedience to God. And as we've already seen, that obedience led to world-changing blessings he couldn't have anticipated, not only for the people of God, but for the people around the people of God. You know, as Christians today, we rightly see the world hurting around us. And motivated by our love of God and our love of neighbor, we ache to see change and even participate in that change. We want to help. But we need to understand that real, eternally significant change takes place when God's people listen to God's voice and obediently walk out into this broken world living as he's called us to live. It's really that simple and that difficult. Whereas God spoke to Jacob in a night dream, in a vision, he speaks to you and I today in the pages of Scripture. And just like Jacob, there are things in the Bible today that God tells us to do that will bring questions to our minds. Things we won't totally understand and things that run against the culture in which we live. Forgiving enemies? Submitting to authority? Denying ourselves? Suffering with joy? Standing for objective truth? Declaring a message of exclusivity? How can we do those things and affect change? It seems those are antithetical. People won't take us seriously. Some of it doesn't make sense. It's too antiquated, too conservative, too risky, or too local. But God has spoken. And like Jacob, each Christian has to ask themselves, is he a good communicator? Is he clear in what he's called us to do? Is he trustworthy. And if he is, 
I need to walk in humble obedience where he's called me to walk. I can't change the whole world, and neither can you. Sin, which is the cause of every single bit of brokenness we see, the cause of it all, is beyond our ability to handle. But what I can do is obey the one who is able and live a life of trusting obedience in the circles of influence in which he has placed me. And then watch as he, through me, blesses the people around me in my home, in my workplace, in my classroom, at the gym, at the store, on social media, and in my church. As God's people, when we see brokenness on the news or reported online, we should drop to our knees and call out to the only one who can help, asking him for mercy, peace, and justice. And then we should get up off our knees and do what God has called us to do, model trust-filled obedience for the people around us. We may not be able to fix issue X in this world, but we can raise children who fear the Lord. We can influence grandchildren to be people who seek godly justice. We can impact our siblings and friends with a Christ-like view of human dignity. We can model for coworkers what it looks like to be truly loving and forgiving. We can bring people the gospel message, the ultimate catalyst for true change. We can be conduits of God's world-changing power to the people that he has placed around us by his providential wisdom and care. And with that in mind, I want to encourage and challenge you in a few minutes from now when we are finished here to do three things, three things as we wrap up our time together. The first is this. When we finish our recording, spend time praying for a specific manifestation of brokenness that you see in this world. From sex trafficking to broken marriages, from racism to genocide, whatever the Lord lays on your heart, intercede on behalf of the hurting. And after you've done that, here's the second thing I want you to do. Take a piece of paper and a pen and write down the names of at least five people who are in your direct circle of influence. Five people and acknowledge that God himself has put them there in your path, in your life. Write them down, five names. And finally, the third thing I want you to do. Looking at this list of people that you know, that you interact with, that you love, these five people, I want you to pray. Pray down that list of names, asking God to change their lives, change their worlds through your influence as you strive to live a life of trust-filled obedience in their presence. Brothers and sisters, those are the circles of influence that God has given to you and me. Those are the arenas in which God can work through our trust-filled obedience to his word. We obey his word and he can work in and through us to change the world in real, lasting, eternally significant ways. It begins with each of us, brothers and sisters, trusting God and walking in obedience to what he has called us to do. May he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to do just that for our good and for his glory.